week, Psalm 139. Again, if you're there, let me tell you this. We have been in Psalms now for 11 weeks. This is our 12th week as we wrap up the book of Psalms this summer. We chose 12 Psalms to preach to you guys this summer that we thought God would so use to form us and shape us. And we said from the very beginning that what was beautiful about the book of Psalms is that it is so emotional, right? And it's not meant just for us to derive actual doctrine from, that you can read things in here like we'll read today about how David is praying to God for people to be destroyed, where we don't look at that and say, hey, maybe that's not a doctrine that we derive from this, but rather it is the heart cry of a man who so loves Jesus, that, or so loves God, uh, that he is upset and frustrated and torn apart at the fact that there are those who hate him, right? And so today is this last moment where I'm trusting that God will use his word to form us to be a people that love and worship him more than we ever have, okay? And, and I'm hoping, listen, you have to be part of that, right? I get it. I, I've been in church for a long time, too. I didn't always, I wasn't always the one up here, right? So I've sat in your seats, and I've had the moments where I've just come to church, and I kind of sang the songs, and I waited for the sermon to kind of get to its conclusion, maybe try to take one nugget or two nuggets, and then was ready to move along my way to go to lunch, I want us, if we can, please, to check in, to push in, and I promise you the Lord will deliver because what we'll study today is that the Lord is constantly and always pursuing you even amongst your rebellion against him. This is really good news for us because even if we came in here with an attitude of I got this or an attitude of apathy or an attitude of I don't want anything to do with you, the God of the universe we will learn today is on a pursuit for your soul and a pursuit for your heart. And even if you're a Christian today, he is still consistently coming after you to make you more like his son. This is great news for us because we are not that good at consistently loving God, right? Is that, can I get an amen on that one? Amen. So praise God that he comes after us. I want to say as we look at Psalm 139, this psalm for me has been extremely formative. Many of you know I got saved in college, and man, I got saved, and, and I've said this before, but I was that guy that was like, all right, I'm already kind of loud and outspoken, and so I was so convinced of the gospel that I thought everyone just had to know, and they had to know in a loud and yelling type of way, right? And so I got saved, and I was the guy at San Diego State that was just telling everyone. I barely knew anything about doctrine or theology, but you can ask Drew, after like two weeks at being involved on campus, they appointed me the outreach director of Camps Crusade, Right? Just don't even check any credential. Just like, you're loud. You seem to like Jesus. You should do this, right? <laughs> and so I was just going. I was like, hey, you need to know. Here's a survey. And, and it was, in, in some parts, it was incredible. God did amazing things. In other ways, I'm sure there are people that still refer to me as the guy and the reason why they don't come to church. <laughs> but what happened is I, I, I hit a sophomore slump, if you will, right? So I get saved as a freshman. Sophomore year rolls around. And I begin to really kind of look around, and, and I begin to think to myself, am I, am I, do I really believe this? Or, or did I kind of just sign up because it was the next thing I wanted to excel at? Right? I was always pretty good at sports and school and, and different things, and sports kind of faded when I got into college, and so what was going to be that next thing? Maybe it could be this Jesus thing, because people seemed to like that I was good at Christianity. And so I began to rebel against this and go back to some of my old ways and say, Man, I, I just don't know if I actually believe this stuff. And we're sitting down with a good friend of mine. She lives in San Diego. Just saw her about a month ago. She just had her first baby. Amazing kid, amazing girl, ama amazing woman of God. And remember, she convinced me to read Psalm 139 every day for a month. 
So you need to read this thing. You need to read it over and over and over. And it changed my understanding of my life. Because everything that I thought I knew about Christianity had to do with me at the center. Had to do with me going to God, me choosing God, me doing the research to find out that God was accurate and true and better than the other alternatives. Everything about my Christianity was about me being the outgoing, loud-spoken one that people would want as the leader. Everything about my Christianity was formed around what I wanted to be true about this new faith. But everything about Psalm 139 says, I'm not the hero. Like everything about this psalm says that God alone is the hero. That even in my rebellion consistently, even this morning, when I choose to not follow him and I choose, to, I choose sin or idolatry instead, God is constantly saying, no, 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 no. Hey, I'm here, I'm here, I'm coming for you and brings me and hems me in. So I hope that this psalm has the same type of formative effect on your heart as it has mine. Okay, so let's jump into the word of God. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So here's the arc of where we're going, okay? First, God knows us, God pursues us, God values us, and then God calls us. And so we're here just on the front end. God knows you. And, and, and this, this idea, I think, is a trite comment, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, God, God knows all about you. And I hear it in conversation all the time. I say it to people all the time. Do you get the depths with which God understands every aspect of you? Some of us in the room are married, right? And so I would say my wife, Verity, wherever she is at, uh, there, yep, hi. Uh, she knows me better than anyone else in this world, right? She, she is forced to spend 24 hours a day with me at times, right? She, she knows about the noises that I make when I'm sleeping, right? She knows things about me that no one else knows. And what she knows doesn't even touch an ounce of what God knows about you. The closest relationship in your life is nothing does not hold a candle to what God knows about you. And this text here, I think, as David writes this, and again, as we said last week, I think he's coming towards the end of his kingship, right? And if last week we kind of saw this, it, I felt it was more of a corporate moment as they, we knew we'd sing this song of praise amongst the congregations in the temple in the Old Testament. I find this moment to be kind of this intimate moment where we get to be the fly on the wall to see this dialogue between David and his God. And he starts off by saying, God, you have searched me and you have known me, right? You have inspected my life. You've inspected my heart. You've inspected all of these things and you know me deeper and more personally than any person in this world. And let's break that down. It says that he knows your every action. So when I sit, rise, or lie down, he knows everything that you've done, everything you'll do today, and everything you'll do tomorrow and for the rest of your life. He knows it all, everything you've done, right? So if we come into this room and we think we can hide, or if we can lie to our spouse and we can hide those things, you cannot hide them from God. He knows everything that you've done. Right, so so let's, let's just do a quick mental checklist right, of all the things that we've done that maybe no one else in the room knows about because you don't want him to. He knows that. Right? He, he, knows every, he knows every good thing, every bad thing, everything in between. He knows every thought right, from afar, way off. God knows every thought you've ever thought. So th there's nothing that you've conjured up in your brain that the Lord does not know about. That is a scary thought. 
because I've thought some wicked and evil things in my life. And God knew every bit of it. He knew every good thought. He knew every bad thought. He knew everything in between. Hear me. Run through the checklist of everything you've ever thought. God knew you thought it. You cannot hide. There's a movie called uh, What Women Want, right? Classic. Um, and in the movie, Mel Gibson gets struck by lightning, and he starts to hear the voices of every woman that he comes by, right? And so all of a sudden, he finds out that all these people actually hate him because he's a terrible person. Um, but he's walking through this life, and, and, and he hears every thought that these women think in his entire life. Jesus, and, and, and this sounds, I, don't, I mean this like truthfully, like Jesus is, he's like the true and greater Mel Gibson from this movie, right? Like Jesus, he, was, he walked this earth, right? And as you read him in the Gospels, and you begin to see the way that he carried on. You see all those times where he asks a question to the disciples, and they kind of give him an answer, but he knows what they're actually thinking and feeling. And so he calls them out. And so he consistently and faithfully does that for you and I every single day. Do we choose to listen to him? There is not an action, there is not a thought that you have ever done or thought about that he doesn't know. He knows your every future move. He searches out our past. He knows everything about your life. Every, he knows, listen, so he knows everything you've done, but he knows every future thing that is coming as well, the direction your life is headed. He knows your every motive, all our ways. He's acquainted with all our ways. So not just what we think, not just how we implement what we think, but actually the reason for why we do the things we do, he knows that too. And so this morning I'm driving here to church and I'm praying and, and we, um, we just had our staff retreat. We do a staff retreat over the summer every year to plan for the next year. And we're sitting there, and one of the questions that we continued to want to come back to during our staff retreat, and we always try to as a staff, is whose kingdom are we building? Right? Are we building God's kingdom or are we trying to build the, our kingdom here at Redemption Church? Right? Wh whose kingdom? Because if it's, if it's our kingdom, this, this will probably fall apart pretty badly at some point. Maybe it goes well for a while, but that kingdom will crumble. That tower, too, will get knocked over and fall. And so whose kingdom are we building? Right? And so I'm praying that this morning, and this is running through my mind, and I'm praying to God, and I'm thinking to myself, Lord, you know, like... I, I just want this to be about you, and I want your, your, your gospel to go forward, and I want people to get saved, and, I, and, and Lord, you know, if it's your will, I want the church to grow, but it's not that big deal if it doesn't. And internally, I'm thinking, Lord, please let our church grow so it's big, and I have a big church, right? And then I think about what I'm preaching today. And yet I still try and continue in my prayer as if somehow in the midst of this prayer, God stopped analyzing my motives, God, I don't really care. You know what? We could fold up tomorrow. I don't care. It's all about you. Inside, I'm thinking, Lord, please don't let that be true. I love what I do. I love our church. I want to have a big church, right? Now, these are all silly, false things, and I know that cognitively, but my heart ascends to there, and I'll just confess that before you, that I don't think that's okay, but it does. And yet in the moment of me praying about today's sermon, my heart goes there, and I try and convince God that I'm not actually thinking that. Do I even believe what I'm telling you this morning? Do you believe what God is telling you this morning? He's going to tell us in just a bit, we don't need to hide. We don't need to hide from each other. We certainly don't need to hide from him. Because everything's already known. There's nothing you could do. There's nothing you could say. There's nothing you could think. There's no motive in your heart that he doesn't know about. 
And so why we choose deceit, why we choose false motive, why we choose lying, why we choose hiding, I, if we believe this, and hear me, if you're a Christian, this, this is for us, right? If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, that's not your thing, okay, great, man, first, thanks for being here. We love that you're here and you're spending time with us, you're asking questions. Maybe you just got dragged here, free lunch, I don't know, whatever the reason why you came, it's great to have you. But, but this is a calling out to the Christians, say, man, like, do you believe what the Bible says about what God knows about you? The implications of that should probably look different than the way most of us, and I don't know all of you, the way most of us live out our lives. He continues on. He knows our every word before we even say it. Right? So, so again, it's, it's inward, it's outward, it's, it's all over you. God knows every aspect of your life. And I think, again, David, looking towards the end of his life, is just acknowledging this. And let's just think about David for a moment, if we might. So King David has led this pretty remarkable life up to this point. So he, if this is kind of maybe towards the end of his reign, I imagine he looks back to when he was just uh, with his brothers in the field, caring for the sheep amongst his father Jesse, and they're just doing their thing and caring for people and, and, and just trying to live this life. And then all of a sudden he gets called to go bring water and food and rations to his brothers who are on the battlefield. And he gets there and all of a sudden he sees this giant named Goliath and they're said, man, no one can defeat him. He's like, I could whoop that dude. And so he grabs his slingshot and grabs a rock and goes and kills Goliath. And imagine he's looking back on that and he's saying, man, I, God, I'm faithful. Man, look, look what I did. God so rewarded this. He, he sees the faith of this young man named David. He appoints him king, right, replaces Saul. But then his life takes different bad turns. Psalm 51, we looked at earlier in this series, we realized, man, this is a lament after he had a, a man killed after sleeping with his wife. We see that he's hiding in a cave at different points as opposed to living in his palace because his own children are trying to kill him. I imagine he's looking back on his life. He's like, God, you knew all of this. Like, you, you knew everything. And you knew all the motives and the things that were in my heart the entire time. And so the question is, what do we do if we believe this? Right? Like, what should David do? What would be the next part of this psalm? What would he do when he finally realizes that he cannot hide from God? What, what does he do with that knowledge? And I think it's a couple things. Verse 5. It says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I shall ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So what, what does David do in this confrontation uh, of, man, God, you know everything? He worships. He starts talking about God. And I think it's the first should-be flinched response of our souls is to say, God, you know every aspect of me. Praise your name. Because I think it's easy for us to say, I hate that you know everything, and so I'm going to go hide over here. Right? God, you, you, you knew what I thought when I was, when I was looking at this thing. Right? You, you knew what I thought when I was getting frustrated and angry. You knew what I thought. You knew my actions even though I was by myself. I think most of us, if we're honest, would want to hide in that situation. 
So, so sometimes, let's be honest, God feels, can feel ethereal, right? He's off. He's not really here. He's not really involved in our life. He's not present. And so let, let's bring it down to, to brass tacks. Let's bring it down to just um, your spouse or your closest friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever the closest relationship to is in your life. Now, now if, you, if you had done something to betray their trust, their feelings, their heart, their love, their fill-in-the-blank, and then they found out about it, what do you do? What is, what is your flinch? Is it to praise them? Is it to celebrate that them knowing might be a good thing because then maybe that leads to your freedom? Or is it to lie and to hide and to try and make up excuses? Okay. So, so if we bring it down to this level, what, what is the actual thing? And so if, if, if Christians, if we truly believe God, though, is far more close to us than any relationship in this life, he sees everything, knows everything, the whole deal, what will we do? I think we're supposed to worship God. I think we're supposed to tell truths about him. I think we're supposed to speak consistent truth about what he has done, who he is, what his character is, what his purpose is, what his love for us is. Because as we see here, there's a couple things that are said about God that in the midst of him knowing about you, what does God do? I think I know what we do. I think we try and cower in fear, and we'll have some evidence of that in just a moment. But what does God do? Verse, verse 5 says that he draws us to himself and reassures us of his kindness. So, so David just spent kind of the first kind of part of this thing saying, God, you know everything about me. And again, he's looking at a life that's riddled with sin too. And he says, but God, here's what you did in the midst of all that. You hem me in. You draw me close and you remind me of your kindness. And so, so if that's true, why the running? So if, if, we, if we believe this about God, if that is God's love and his pursuit of his people, is that he's saying, listen, okay, I know it all, but guess what? Come to me. I want to embrace you. I want to love you. I want to show you my kindness and goodness. Why do we run? Why is it that in Genesis chapter 3, all the way in the beginning, we see the first instance of this? Right, so, so Adam and Eve in the garden, they had it perfect, right? I mean, like absolutely perfect. We cannot fathom the goodness that they had, right? And so, but then they blow it. They sin, sin uh, uh, yeah, they disobey, sin enters into the world, and they experience these emotions that they've never felt before. It says at the moment that they disobeyed, it said that they experience shame. They were naked and unashamed, but then it says that they realized that they were naked, and what did they do? They hid behind bushes, right? They're like, oh, and they hid. So this first sin, this first emotion that I don't think we were ever supposed to experience that floods into this world post-fall, the first thing after disobedience was shame and was hiding. And so what does God do? God comes into the garden. He says, hey, where are you guys at? Right? He searches them out. And like he doesn't know, right? He's like, yeah, they're in the bushes. I'm going to play the game. And so he's like, where, where are you? Did you eat of that tree I told you not to eat of? How did you know you were naked? And it says that in that moment, God comes in and he clothes them before he sends them out of the garden. Now, now this moment is very important because God's first act before sending them out of the garden, right? Before saying, okay, hey, this, this is for later, right? We're going to fix this over the course of history and we'll be back at the end of time. But we're going to save this. We're gonna, you're going to go. You've got to get cast out, right? But before he does that, he clothes them. And I think he is trying to remove their shame. You were naked and unashamed. You realized that you were naked and filled with shame. So God comes in and says, here's what I'll do. I will clothe you now. 
and gives them clothes so that when they leave the garden, shame no longer lives with them. Man, if that's the God that David speaks about today, man, there's a whole lot more freedom I think we should probably live in today. There's a way better understanding I think we should have. What does it mean to hide from God, not want God to expose us, and not wanting to be exposed by the people around us? Why do you hide from the closest people in your life? Makes no sense if we believe this. Let's keep going. The second thing he does is he pursues us. And this whole, this whole part of this passage, this is what got me in, in college was that in the midst of me even trying to flee at times, he just kept saying, no, man, you can't get away. You just can't get away. Isaiah 59.1 says, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. In other words, you cannot run farther than his arm can reach. You, You cannot go farther than he is able to save. And so it was so encouraging for me in college was when I was like, all right, God, I think I'm out. I'm going to go do my thing. And then he consistently and constantly said, you can't get away. You're mine. I've decided, right? God, this is God. I'm speaking as God. I've decided you're mine, and so I'm bringing you back. I am relentlessly pursuing you. And again, since Genesis 3, this has been the MO of God to come back and pursue a lost creation. And God does not fail at what he pursues pursues you even as you reject him. God pursues you even as you say, no, thank you. And if God wants to win you over, he will. Make it easier, okay? Stop fighting. Give give over these things that maybe we cling so tightly to. God, I don't I don't want you to have this part of me. I don't want you to know this part of me. I don't want to be I don't want to be exposed to these people or that people. No, no, give that over because one, he already knows it, and then two, he pursued you in the midst of it anyway. And he's gonna win every time. He pursues us even even as we rebel. And the metaphors that are given here, he talks about heaven and Sheol, right? heaven and hell. He talks about west and east, darkness and light, creating these complete opposite ends of the spectrum to say that I will go all the way here or all the way here and everywhere in between there is no place you can go where God will not reach and will stop speaking. So Lord, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear you. Okay. God is good. All the time? Dang, that worked. I didn't think that was gonna work. So, like, nine of you going to heaven. Um, How do we then respond to a God who pursues us relentlessly? So, if this is true for us, listen to me, if this is true for us today, how do we respond to someone that, in the midst of all of our pain and brokenness, has never given up? I don't know how many relationships you and I have in this world that are like that. I think I have that with Verity. I think she is that amazing and selfless and faithful that even in the midst of my rebellion, I think she would just consistently love me well. I I think maybe my parents, maybe maybe there's a few people, some of you maybe don't have any of that. I know some of your stories. I know some of you don't have any of that outside of God, and God cares far, far deeply, far more deeply than anyone in this world ever could. So in the midst of all of our pain, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, even all of the good things, we have a God who said, you know what I do with that? I just keep coming. You can't do anything that will make me stop loving you, okay? So what do we do when people, when we find out that God pursues us and loves us, right? Um, we celebrate, right? In verse, uh, geez, where is it? Verse 6. 
such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Again, we worship. This keeps coming back to worshiping God. If there's an application point is in the midst of knowing this, worship, 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 worship. Make much of him. Glory him. Do everything to make him seem great and big in your life. And then the rest usually falls into place. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 13, why this love, right? So, so why, though? Like, and I think this is one of the things I've struggled with for a long time. Why would God, if he knows everything about me, still choose to pursue? Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your, uh, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Why? Why, God? Like, why, why would you still want this and everything that I kind of have going on inside here? Okay. A few things. One, he created and formed you, right? Like, he made you, guys. Whoever, whatever you believe, okay, God made you. Now, now your, your mother did an amazing job in making you also, but she was the co-author, she was the sub-author of the creation and the formation of your life. God created you, made you, formed you, and continues to do that to this day. And so that is why he has a relentless love and pursuit for your life and your soul and your future is because he made you. If you have kids in here, maybe this is a little easier to understand, right? You helped create this thing and the desperate love you have for your child. Other things, if you don't have kids, that's fine. There's other things you have owned in your life, right, that you've helped make and, and bring into existence, whether it be an idea, a job, organization, whatever, just something that you would call, right, we say, oh, that's my baby, right? And you just love it, and you would do anything for it, and you say, I mean, I will fight for this cause, I will fight for this kid till the day I die because it is that precious to me. That is the way God sees you because he made you. Your existence is credited to him. Man. That's why he loves. That's why he continues to come in the midst of your brokenness. Because, man, I, I can tell you anything. Finley, gosh, and he just gets more and more disobedient, right? Apparently this doesn't go well and get better for a little bit here. And so he's throwing stuff. He's starting to, like, whack Verity and stuff like that, you know, with, with stuff. And he's finding bats now. And it's just craziness, you know. Um, and in the midst of it, I'm like, man, it doesn't matter. I am going to try to continually win your affection until the day you die. That is the way God sees us. Second part, he, um, he sees and authors your life. Right? So, so he, he sees, he knows the days that you will live. He knows the day you'll die, and he knows everything in between, and he authors those things. The context for those, the environment and things of those, that he, he does it with you. I mean, he knows it all. So now he doesn't just know you, he doesn't make you, he made your life. And the last part is he treasures you. It says his thoughts are about you are more than you can count in, a, in, you know, in sand. And so when we were out in North Carolina, we were at the beach, and I'm laying there, and I knew we were doing psalms this summer, and Psalm 139 is my favorite psalm, so I knew we'd preach it. And so I'm laying there, and I literally grabbed a thing of sand, and I was like, I'm going to count this handful of sand. And I'm going to see how many grains are in this handful. 
and I stopped at 60, okay? <laughs> and it was like a pinch, right? And I was like, I am wasting my vacation. <laughs> I don't like you guys that much, right? If we can for a second, think about a God, a creator, that at all times has so many thoughts about you that it outnumbers the sand in this world. I think I love my wife, right? I thought about her seven times this morning. Maybe. Can you imagine the love and the affection that God, the creator, has for every person in this room and every person outside this room? That he would think about you and all your junk and all your goodness he would think about you more than the grains of sand in the world. What a God we have. He made us. He knows your life. And he thinks about you constantly. So yeah, he's going to keep coming for your life and keep coming for your soul. What does all this mean? This means that, gosh, your life has more importance than you could ever imagine. It means your actions have more importance than you can imagine. Your thoughts, your motives. He cares so much about them that the God of the universe is on a rescue plan to win them back. He created you. Today's Finley's two-year two -year birth, two birthday, second birthday. Okay? Yeah. It's his second birthday, and it got me obviously thinking... As I'm looking at this text, I remember the nine months, right, that it takes to make a baby. We're leading up, and every month, you know, it's different. Oh, now he's the size of a pistachio, you know. And, and now he's a, now he's a, you know, he's a kumquat, or, you know, whatever, whatever things it are, it is. And I just remember thinking, and like the whole time as that's going, the moment we found out we were pregnant, the affection for my son has not changed. Like, just this absolute love because we knew we were making this thing, right? I wish I could bottle that emotion and that affection for the way I understand the love for my child and that I would just somehow be able to cognitively even approach that that's the way God loves me. And I hope that somehow we could even do that today. And I think that's a Holy Spirit thing. I, I, think, I think the Holy Spirit has to come in and reveal to us more, to break down some of the barriers of a culture that constantly lives in this, well, you're, again, like we said last week, you're the best thing ever or you're the worst thing ever, right? I'll tell you this, you are, <laughs> you're way worse than you could ever think. Like, let's just put that, you're way worse than you could ever think in your actions and your thoughts. We're just terrible people usually. We do good stuff, I get it, but internally we just, come on. But man, you're far more loved than you would ever hope. That's what this psalm tells us. And so we worship, we respond, and we're going to land this here as we look at this last little part. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You kind of read this at the end. You said this amazing psalm. You're talking about the love of God and how it pursues us and how, man, you've won me over even in the midst of my sin. Then he's like, but kill those dudes, right? 
Like, God, I'm such a wretch. Thanks for saving me. But those guys just wreck shop on. And I think if you read this and you try and develop doctrine off it, you're just like, gosh, this is tough. But I think if you read it as a man who loves God more than anything else in the world and understands that God loves him far, than, far more than that, when he looks out upon his kingdom and begins to see, not just in his kingdom, but outside as those would try and destroy the people of Israel in the Old Testament, that he would look at these people and say, gosh, man, this, how could they hate you? You've done all of this. You've done all of this. You've come for them. You made them. You formed them. You've given them this creation, and yet they're going to rebel against you? That, that anger, that frustration with people not being able to see that there is a good and perfect God that is screaming and crying from the mountaintops, hear me, I love you, be mine. And I think what we see is a raw emotional moment from King David to say, I just wish they knew, and what it manifests is, is God just get rid of them. Not to mention that this happened often in the Old Testament. That God's justice is a real thing. His wrath is a real thing. That God does punish the wicked. If he didn't punish the wicked, if we, if we can't resonate with that, if he didn't punish the wicked, if he doesn't hate sin, if he doesn't come in and destroy that, right? Then there was no need for Jesus. Jesus only came because there is justice, because there is wrath, because he did need to destroy this thing. And so I think this this little moment of honesty as we peer into the soul and the words of David just make a lot of sense. Because this is truly, these verses here, it's what you and I deserve. That's just the truth of the matter. It is what you and I deserve and is not what we receive as we come to him. If, here's what it is. I think if we do what David does here in these last couple verses, he says this, <clears throat> Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So I think on the front end of the psalm, it's this cognitive ascent. God, you know me. You know all this about me. You've done these things. There's some worship. It's great. I think what he does here at the end is this, God, come and do this. I entreat you. I implore you. Search me. Open me up. Flail me open. Let me be exposed to you and to the world. Because as you do that, as you get rid of the anxiety, the frustration, the fear, the grievous ways in me that will lead me down a path of destruction, as you do that, I am saved, and I'm yours, and I experience the benefits of a God who created and pursues us since we were lost. So he invites God in. He, doesn't, he does the exact opposite of the garden, right? He doesn't hide and say, oh man, I did this, and so hides behind a bush. No, he says, all right, I did this, but guess what? Keep showing me my brokenness so that I will worship you more, that I will be led by you better, and I will bring this gospel to the world. I think that needs to be our cry this morning. I, I think that's where we need to land. 
is, is all this is really good news, but it's not that great a news if you just say, God, I still don't want it. He's going to keep coming, but I implore you, I entreat you this morning, allow God to search you, allow God to know you, and allow God to lead you. And all those things, man, sometimes it's hard to put feet to that. What does that really mean? I think it means stop hiding. It means stop lying. It means start confessing to the people around you the brokenness of your life. You don't need to have it all together. I, I've got great friends that have been married for almost 20 years. And their sin of 20 years has finally caught up to them. And they are on the brink of absolute calamity. Because they just hid for 20 years from each other. And there's some of us in that position where somewhere along that spectrum, stop it. There's no reason to. Because I tell you this, as, as, as we are his people, we're going to try and treat you the same way. We're supposed to, at least. Constantly pursue you in love because we love each other that way. And we have the gospel inside of us. We live out of that. Jesus, when he died on the cross, says that he clothed us in righteousness. That the blood of Christ that was shed at Calvary covers over the multitude of sin in your life. And so now you and I, just like they were clothed physically in the garden, are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Set away not to experience shame, but rather to experience freedom and love and his presence and his mission for the rest of our lives. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is why it's a central aspect of everything we do, we need to remember, and we implore other people to believe. You are clothed in righteousness if you love him. I implore you, invite him in, know him, know Jesus, love Jesus. If you're here and you came, and, and again, if you were one of the ones I talked about earlier, you're not a Christian, right? And let me just say to you, there's plenty of you in the room. There's a lot that come every week, and I just want to say, man, please pray this. Like, please pray these, search me, God. See if there be any anxious or grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Church, here's my direct application to you. For this next week, we start the Sermon on the Mount next week. And I'll tell you this right now, it is going to be heavy. Like, I'm, I'm like already crying during sermon prep. Heavy type of stuff. And so, allow God to search you this week. So I want to implore you, every morning, every night, whenever you pray, and listen, it doesn't have to be one time a day. Keep praying this. Pray these two verses every day this week and see what God does. See what he reveals and don't hide. Indeed, actually share that with the people around you. If you're here not a believer, please pray these things this week and see what God does. See how he speaks, see how he pursues, see how he loves. Okay? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you because you are, you come, you come and get us. God, I know this, I was not at all searching for you. I wasn't looking for you when you decided to just, I guess, pull off the blinders that you've been pursuing me the whole time. And so I pray that you'd just do that today, that you'd open up the eyes of those who have denied you up to this point, who haven't seen you, who don't understand you, and that, God, you just come in and say, it's time. God, for those of us in here who love you or say that we love you, God, would you convict us to stop hiding from you and stop hiding from each other and rather just embrace the reality that for some reason you love us 
And God, that you're going to use your love for us to implore us to bring love and the gospel to the world, to bring holiness and righteousness to our lives. God, we thank you that you have clothed us in your blood, in righteousness. So God, when you look upon us, although our action often will still be littered with unrighteousness and saying, God, you see us, you have clothed us in righteousness where there's no shame, but there is freedom. There is no condemnation for those who are in you, Lord, and we celebrate that today. So God, now as we worship, I just pray that you'd be glorified just as David wrote these songs and as we looked at this series for the whole summer, Ultimately, God, we know these psalms were just about telling the people about you and what you've done. And so, God, I pray that as we sing this afternoon, as we celebrate you, that the world would know what you've done and that you want to do it in every heart and every soul of every man, woman, and child in this world. Heavenly Father, would you come in power and in grace this morning? We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.